Thanks for listening to the Women Emerging podcast. Every week we put up a new episode with insights into leadership, practical leadership, seen through the eyes of women leaders of all ages and all sectors from right across the world. Our aim is for women to be able to say, if that's leadership, I'm in. Don't forget to subscribe to the podcast and join Women Emerging on our website, womenemerging.org. That's womenemerging.org for more fabulous free leadership content. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Julia Middleton here, your Director of Women Emerging and your podcast host. This is the second of this what's turning out to be an utterly glorious series. It started last week with Utara talking about her journey to become better at leading. And I will never forget a picture of Utara holding up the adoption certificate for her son and explaining what that that certificate symbolises for her. This week is Paula. Just to remind you, the idea is that each woman talks us through the pivotal moments over their career where they have learnt a lot more about leading. And for to illustrate each moment, they choose an object and talk about it and why that object is the right one, which is, which is why Utara spoke about the adoption certificate for her son. This week it's Paula, who is a film producer, a very successful and wonderful film producer. She's Argentinian, now living in London. And her first object, her first object is a photograph of her mother. Dawn, why is a picture of your mother such an important part of this leadership story? I think. Well, there is that thing about if you cannot see it, you cannot be it. And I think my mother is definitely the embodiment of you can you can see it and you can be it. She is a self-made, uh, absolutely self-made woman in her own intellectual path as a feminist, as a psychologist, as a fighter for human rights, as a fighter for women's rights. In Argentina, in now in Spain, in the last twenty now in years, Spain. she's been in Spain, but it, but it started in Argentina, and and before that, she was an air hostess. In her, um, you know, she raised me with support from her grandparents, from my grandparents, her parents, and, and my aunts, and you know, all together in a, a tiny house, but. She kind of felt that I wanted to travel the world, but we didn't have the resources. And so she decided to become an hostess so she could um, make me travel. And I can see her as a long line of sacrifice, but also of inventive ways to lead a new life for herself and myself all the time. And so, yes, it, it, it must start with her and, and, and a photo of her, definitely. But it particularly starts with you because of that expression you used. She obviously said, like you do sometimes, this is just not possible. <laughs> oh, yes, many times she does. 
all the time. I mean, she's a, she's a forensic psychologist these days and she works a lot in, I mean, her, her life is like a 24 seven work on, on, on terrible stories of women that need support and, and a lot of, uh, I mean, sometimes I do reflect that it is also to do with her own story. I mean, the fact that she had me like really young, you know, she was a teenage mother and, and she, my father was not around and all those things. So I guess when she's helping those women, she's also helping her young self. This is my own interpretation. But I, yeah, I think many times she found the strength and the, and the courage to, to get out there and think this is not possible. And when have you said that? Oof, when did I say that? I said that, I guess I said that the first time I considered leaving Argentina behind. I was a journalist there and then. And uh, I felt very, very choked by the, uh, by the misogynistic culture there. And I felt very choked by the culture was very, very um, suffocating. Your mother taught you that to be a leader, you have to be a rebel. In a way, yeah, one could say that. I, against my own will as well, but, I, but also you, you want to lead and change things because things as they are, I wouldn't be a leader because for you know, a Latin American woman that, you know, phenotypically white, but still Latin American and Spanish speaking and all of that, doesn't look like the template of leaders that we can see out there. So when you're not from the template, both geographically speaking and the networks of privilege and the networks of, of, of advantages, let's say, embedded in, in, the, in the space when you are, when you keep building where you were born, for example, when you, when you just do like, you know, 10 generations in the same place, I think there is no other way but to rebel. I mean, if you're a marginalized, one of the marginalized groups, if you're from that center, core center of power, you probably don't rebel because things are okay. But if you're your kind of leader, you know you have to rebel. And that means that you have to call things out. And sometimes there's a real price. I see you paying for calling things out. Yeah, I, I think so. I always think that there are others paying, you know, who are paying a larger price and that sometimes they cannot choose. And the fact that I have a choice at times makes me more privileged. So therefore, it's not something that you can choose not to do. I think I think about that a lot. I mean, one of the biggest prizes of leaving Argentina, I think I paid beyond, of course, leaving my friends and original network of support is leaving behind a full wall of books that I was not able to take with me. And I was very proud of but gathering throughout time. I started living on my own when I was 19. And so I went when I was in my mid-20s. I, I went away. And so that all those seven or so years, or eight years, 18 or 19, I was not going to live on my own. All those books were like a <laughs> full wall. I was so proud of it. And I grabbed my cat before I left and I took my, my cat and stood in front of the wall and asked my mom to take a photo of me of the cat and the wall of books. And I carried that photo everywhere. I had to leave the cat too, of course. Come back to the books. Have, yes. you, have you got better at calling things out as you've grown up, like we all do, I suppose? Grown up is a terrible word, but 
over the years? Have you got better and better at calling things out? I've always been good at calling things out. What I need to be better at is, is, is at calling things in. What does that mean? Well, it implies being less outraged and more strategic. Because I, I've been always very good at calling things out. But sometimes calling things out leaves you and those things that you want to, you know, let's say defend or, or change, leaves you very exposed. And sometimes being strategic and calling things in, as I'm learning from some of my colleagues on the, from my from my work in, in diversity and inclusion as well, which I'm extremely grateful for, for how they, they help me become better at those things, is less about being outraged and calling out and more about how can we, how can we really push for real change? Because there is this idea that there is you know, a war going on and you're one side or the other side. But I think that there is an, uh, a structure and systems that have been there for, for a long time. And those of us who feel there are things that need to be called out have to work really, really hard at being successful. And if what we get always is just a reaction from the call out and a defensive reaction, although we cannot control that, ideally we need to keep working at strategies that will allow the lasting change as opposed to creativity. Give me an example. Well, imagine that, you know, you, you, you keep calling, um, I don't know, I'm going to give you a very silly example, and it's uh, just for the sake of, you know, being fast. But, you know, a person that calls Colombia the country, Colombia, Colombia, Colombia. I can, I can call you out in front of everybody and say, hey, it's Colombia, not Colombia, it's Colombia. Or I can gather those who speak Spanish and say, hey, are we going to tell Julian that it's Colombia? How do we tell her? And one of us can say, well, let me just send her a little nudge. You know, yeah. let me send her a small message. Because if I just put you out in the open, you may react differently. Although the fact that, you know, English-speaking people call Colombia all the time Colombia, it's, it's, it's a problem. And it's been like that, and it means a lot more than just a letter change. It means I'm calling the country whatever name I am more comfortable with. I am making you into something else. You know, I mean, it's just a small example. But even the most willing people can can be very reactive and not. Yeah, they change. go back down the rabbit hole. Yeah, if they're called out. So that's what I mean. I'm okay. I'm very good at calling out. I just I need to keep honing my skills at calling in and how I can do that. Better. That's a perf that's a really good example. That helps a lot. Colombia. Go back to your books because your second object is in fact that picture of the cat and you and the books, isn't it? It's in that in this journey of your leadership, tell me why. You associate that with the message that leaders should stop trying to achieve. So I have this whole theory about the perfection side of things, of which I was a, a good student for a while in, in trying to be very good at many things. And, but I think without leaving behind the idea that 
being good is great and being great is fantastic. My mother has something that says perfect is the enemy of good. And I, and I like it. And I think um, the work that we do, it's okay to be aspirational at good work. It's okay to be imperfect and it's okay to continue honing and making it better. Because the moment that you believe in this kind of idea of perfection, well, first of all, you go down a rabbit hole of you're never ready. You get frozen by, by fear. You, you, you have to read 300 books about something before you act you activate and I can see it in many of my friends who are you know I'm probably in myself many times still even though I'm already aware of this of this mechanism which if I still believe Sigmund Freud was <laughs> half the way of, of, of curing yourself or seeing it right but I, I think it's um is this um idea of perfection what keeps those who are not the template away from the center of power because th there are so many generally men generally fantastically white and white and who just go they just do it whatever they they along the way nobody's calling them as improvised or you know terrible at what they do and even if they are you know they come back and come back again and bounce in, in argentina we had a we have a writer called uh, roberto Arlt who talks about the cork man. There's like this, this character he created called the cork man who always floats. You know, there is like this, this, this uh, flooding and, and he floats, it doesn't matter what happens. And I think that there are many cork men out there all the time floating while we are trying to become like Olympic swimmers. So I think with time, I, I, I have been very much against trying to become perfect, even in my head and, and trying to sit in discomfort at my own lack of perfection, which starts, you know, it goes from the body to the way you do things. And yeah, and, and, and not take it, not take it so, so hard because then time passes and, and you're not doing things that you want to do. And you're finding, you know, all these excuses and, you know, all this, oh, I'm not, I'm not good at it yet. I cannot show it yet. And there are so many things I still want to do and I want to do. And uh, so I, I decided that this idea of perfection, this idea of, you know, immense knowledge of our things, it, it belongs to an ideology that is not mine, it's not constructed by myself. And I'm not, um, not that it, everything needs to be constructed by myself, but I mean, in terms of what, what fits me, let's say. And it wasn't, made thinking of someone like myself and others who don't feel at the center of that narrative let's say so the next the next object yeah goes back to before if i'm right it goes back to before you left argentina when you're a journalist yes and you're the object is a tape recorder and it's a tape recorder that's tied to the the drawer by your bed where you keep all these recordings of these extraordinary, unbelievable people that you that you spoke to and recorded and did interviews with. Tell us what that teaches you about leadership. I'm always talking about like how important it is where one is going and not so much where one comes from. But I'm not saying that in dismissing someone's roots or dismissing someone's past. I'm saying that in terms of like, make sure that that doesn't weigh in 
so much that you cannot go forward, let's say, or that you can go somewhere else. There's like this big trauma when you migrate, even if you think I have a good life or I managed to make, to make it all right, which is whoever you were, unless you're, you're going from one house to another house in another country, which was also yours, which is not my case. I, I, I arrived in the UK, literally not been ever here before and not knowing one single person. So I've never been to London when I, when I came to live in London. Right? So there is a whole past that you leave behind that at times is unknown to others, but also has no symbology to others, has no weight for others. You know, remember telling about my, my past achievements or whatever it was and, and people looking at me and going like, you know, I've got no idea about that. I've never read that paper. I don't know what it means. So, or even missing the point and assigning it to Brazil or somewhere. I mean, all that lack of knowledge from the, the, the new place. So I think a part of me never wanted to forget that also those things I did as a journalist were, were a big achievement because I came from a family that didn't have people in the arts or didn't have people in media. And I was like the first person to have all those things. And, and at that time, it felt important. And I guess I never wanted to let go of that. I, I tell myself that I have those tapes there because one day I'm going to have time and <laughs> go back to the interviews listen to them and, them and listen when, to them. When you go back, you'll listen to a certain gentleman who I think you recorded who made you think about levels of bullshit. <laughs> levels of bullshit. Well, levels of bullshit, before, if I think of levels of bullshit, I remember when I interviewed Toni Morrison and that she was like the most straight talking woman ever. She, she will call you in, call you out on anything that you didn't get right. And I was probably, I don't know, 24 at the time. And there she was in all her, you know, magnificent glory as the incredible writer, all encompassing knowledge person. She, she was and is in, in her in her work, and I and that stays with me a lot. I I want to go back and, and listen to Toni Morrison. I did I did listen to her interview again at one point, like maybe ten years ago. Um, but there are some others that I I cringe at the idea. I mean, I remember interviewing this very wide middle class, upper middle class, probably a French director, white French director, who who was, you know, telling me that the whole world was was made at his semblance, like his his image was replicated and, and he was the template. And it was very clear, you know, he accessed Hollywood stars and he got money to make his films and, and he would go east, west, north and south and nobody would question what he was doing, even telling all the stories about, you know, faraway lands and faraway cultures and celebrated for it. So yeah, I mean that tape recorder I hold very dear. First of what all, what did that? What did what did interviewing him teach you about leadership? Taught me a lot about class. Interviewing him taught me a lot about class, a lot about gender, and a lot about resources, and a lot about about being very blasé to the fact that you you know things are given for some people. What I guess is difficult when you understand that so bluntly and then you have people like Toni Morrison telling you other things and, and actually telling you brilliant ideas about race and, and, and culture and, and class. And Yoko Ono did the same thing. 
Uh, Yoko Ono, that was, she was fantastic. I, I did interview her as well. It's, Yoko Ono was hmm, different, different, but yes, she also talked about racism and talked about what it was to be placed as a scapegoat for culture. And and yes, I mean, all of those women and, and, all, of the, and, and all of these men that I've interviewed at the time, the men were more templated into the more, the more prestigious tem- template figures and the women were generally either the rebellious ones the ones that society will decide to honor at certain point in their careers when they have been going on for a long for for way too long i mean they should have been way more recognized beforehand it must have been amazing interviewing all these people at such a young age (laughs) it must have been was it your first actually introduction to the concept of fake it till you make it (laughs) <laughs> very good to put it no actually i started at around 18 in radio and and i think that there were a few fake it till you make it characters already there so i've been introduced to fake it till you make it <laughs> since i touched on media i think media has made a lot of that uh, fake it till you make it yeah, characters if there's anything i struggle with or anything that makes me think how am i gonna get through the next day beyond <laughs> material resources is always about what is what is keeping the flame alive of passion and what is keeping the flame alive of what makes you tick as a human and so i think that is what i learned as well at that time that there is a lot of fake it till you make it but as long as you can do your own part as long as you're like very passionate about what you're doing and really stubborn it doesn't matter if you're faking it or you're making it go back to it that french director what else did he teach you about leading that you 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 really i suppose didn't really want to know (laughs) that french director taught me a lot about gender and class really like how some people are very close to power and most times men will support men Materially speaking, they will believe in their vision. They will allow that to thrive, even if they were not the right person to do to do the story. I mean, this this was a, a director who did a film about you know I, can't, I, I don't want to expose the whole thing, but like like something a that film about him. something he knew nothing about. I'm knew nothing about, and 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 yet it was a film that went all the way to the Oscars and. Or, or, or some really high-end awards, and and uh, it was it was a culture that wasn't even his, and and I'm sure uh, you know other directors would have loved to have that opportunity, but they weren't given the same opportunity because they were not close to power and 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 resources, like it was the case of this director, and that and that was very very clear. That sort of leads on quite well to the next object which is which is well in a way it's the name of a film but then it's redacted <laughs> and this is a film that you produced <coughs> and that got to one of the big movie festivals of the world but you were what naive because you didn't get the credit for it naive lack of knowledge loads of things i think 
also, I remember thinking, um, and it happens more often than not to most producers, like most producers will tell you my first film, I didn't have the producer credit. And, and then the more I spoke about it, the more I learned that that was the case. I remember saying a lot, well, it doesn't matter. We have to carry, you know, we have to make sure that we do the film. You know, it doesn't yeah. matter. It really didn't matter. It didn't matter to me. At the it time. doesn't matter. And I'll work every hour God sent because that's what I do. Yeah, yeah. And, and then, of course, there is this other thing that, again, interjects with class and gender, which is the film industry and its privileged stance where many producers are like sons and daughters of producers and sons and daughters of great-grandfathers of producers. <laughs> So when you're not from that space and you're given that opportunity, it's almost like, thank you very much. You know, am I, am I really worth it of this? So you, you don't want to be, it's almost like being in somebody else's house. You don't want to ask for too much water. You don't want to ask for too many times to go to the toilet, even though those are basic things, right? Yeah, I remember just being guided or misguided by all of this very experienced members of of the industry already, who, you know, who saw me working, saw that I was the only uh, producing car producer carrying a lot of these things, but then didn't think that there was any fairness in, in that. Uh, and they said, and they used the, that wonderful expression, trust me. Oh yeah, yeah, trust me, it's gonna be fine. Trust me, we're gonna do, make this, trust me. And, and, and meanwhile, you're alone in that. I mean, I, I was alone. Or, all the way until like the, the release of the film and in the festival. I mean, it was, it was like, it was a whole experience. At that some point, somebody even wanted to take me out of the film because the director was complaining about something. And I was thinking, wow, this is incredible. I've been, I've been working in this film for years. And then of course it was seen that it was not possible because I mean, it's such a complex process to make a film across years. So the message to that for leaders is, is understand the system, ask questions of it. I don't know if it's understand the system because there are things that the system will not reveal before you are faced with them. I think the circle of trust needs to be very deep, but not very big, especially in some industry works like that, especially when you first start. And if you don't know who your allies are, and if you don't know who your mentors are, and if you've never had a mentor, and if you've never had an ally, and if you kind of fell by coincidence or somebody, I remember in my case, I started in the film industry after studying and after you know, studying production, which is what I came to study to the UK, a bit like, oh, if you want to do something with very difficult directors, go talk to Paula because she, <laughs> because she's able to put up with them kind of thing. So difficult directors sometimes came with big names and prestige. And so, so it started like that. And so for a while, I was, I was kind of so caught by the system in a way, in all of these names, in all of the prestige, not knowing really that this came with all this other burden and and where I was the weakest link, let's say. And the fact that I was saying yes to, to being in that space, I think it's also made me a bit complicit of being, you know, this is the way things are. So you were, you'd, you'd forgot by this time, you'd began to forget your mother's advice. 
you weren't being a rebel. No, of course not. Yes, and probably you're right when you say that. Because this, it's also very tiring to be a rebel all the time. It's very tiring. There is no place to rest, you know. There is no time to rest. There is no place to rest. And so somebody said, you know, if you're tired, go rest and come back tomorrow and continue doing what you do. But if the reset was as simple as that, I think we will be just more powerful just by willing to be more powerful. And willingness, I mean, I'm a big, I'm a big daughter of willingness, right? But willingness sometimes has its, uh, has its limitations. And maybe this is me at 50 and not me at 26. Because at 26, if you found me, or 30 or 27 maybe, I was like 100% willpower. You'll be like, anything is possible. <laughs> anything and everything is possible. Um, but yeah, or, or maybe even younger, probably, because by then I've already had a few, a few kids. But like, I don't know, 23, let's say, yeah, probably 22, 23. It's, oh it's weird having this conversation, Paolo, because I know just how successful you are. It's, it's extraordinary. It's, it's always a reminder, isn't it, that you see people and you put them on a pedestal like I do you, and you sort of forget how many hits they've had to get to the pedestal, which you're probably wrong to put them on. We're all normal human beings. But you've got a yoga mat as your last. You've got a <laughs> yoga mat as your last object. Why is I that? I a yoga mat that's, that saves me from, from despair. I am somebody who has had to learn about the present moment by, you know, this, this willingness to do and the future is bright ideas push you forward to what's next a lot. And so you, you kind of sometimes need to stay in the present. And I think that that's, yoga mats are very grounding to the present. And besides the fact that I have a back operation, which is for another story. So without my yoga mat, I will be probably half functional, physically speaking. So I try to never forget the yoga mat because it's, it's something very grounding, very, very present. The past I cannot fix, you know, the things I did wrong or the things that didn't do well or the things that were unfair make me who I am as well. And the future probably requires a lot of vision and a lot of inspiration but a lot less worry than what we get because the thick of it, let's say, it's right now. And we are not created for that thick of it. We are created for the what's next or, you know, hit yourself about the past or what's next. Every day I fail. <laughs> Every day at one point I fail. But I guess that's okay as well. Or I'm trying to work with that's okay as well. I worry a lot about the future many times, but I also think that at times that is the nature of the film business as well, which is also in such turmoil and with such an uncertain future. So I need to, I need to keep grounding myself in the present and I, and the yoga mat is the best way I found to do it. The rebel on the, on the yoga mat, isn't there? No, I don't think I rebel much at the yoga mat. I think I don't. I mean, the fact of doing yoga could be rebellious, but <laughs> I don't. I actually try to be a very good student and try to follow rules and try to follow, you know, 
you know, my, my yoga teacher makes me do things again and again until I do them well, and I don't. So I'm still learning. But um, yeah, the rebel side is, I mean, yeah, at the whole, in, the, in a whole, I am a big rebellious person, that's for sure. I don't think the whole world is it's okay the way it is, and I rebel against that. But I think that there are these moments where you need to find solace, you know, and recharge because rebelling requires so much work. As does leadership. Absolutely. 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 And I, and I feel I'm a completely imperfect rebel and an imperfect leader, but one that's willing to, to try again tomorrow. Howler, that was, that was, that was fabulous. That was really, really fabulous. I have admired you as a rebel ever since I met you. But now it has much more nuance to it, much more depth. But I just hope we never lose the rebel. And the photograph of you with the cat and the books, that's, that'll stick in my head. Anyway, thank you, Paula. Lots of love to everybody and another exciting person next week with their objects. Come back soon. Lots of love, Julia. To become part of our movement and share your thinking with us, subscribe to the podcast and join the Women Emerging group on our website at womenemerging.org. We love all of the messages you send us. Keep them coming.